Podcast episode number six. Um, was going to do a clever numbering thing there again, and I just never pay off like normal. Um, so today I have Neil Roberts. Hi. Oh, you changed it up on me. I was I'm just, ready. I'm just happy to be here. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew a... you were going to. I was waiting for that. And now <laughs> you a... throw me off. I had a funny thing to say, and then I forgot what it was. Oh, I have a lovely cold this week, so I have my <gasps> sultry voice activated. Neil, your voice is always sultry to me. It's extra sultry then. It really is. It's a great voice. Thanks. <laughs> and we have Paul Shannon. Howdy. How's Howdy. everybody doing? Very good. <laughs> um, people have written in to let me know. They're yes. doing good. Excellent. <laughs> I figured I did that last time. I didn't want to throw you off, Tori. Yeah. Just well, throw it out to the crowd. That, <laughs> that's good stuff. You guys are starting off strong now. I was unprepared. <laughs> For, for this, um, as I normally am unprepared. Um, today's episode is brought to you by Windows Phone 10. Um, run literally dozens of apps and join a community of tens of people running Windows Phone to do all the cool stuff that you'd want to do with a telephone. That's Windows Phone 10. Use it and try to use it. <laughs> I, th- I don't know. I, I don't read very well, but that's what it says. That's weird. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, that's weird. Um, yeah, I hear they got some apps. There's a couple, so you should give it a shot. Um, I really like it. Um, I, it's, it's interesting. You can your phone can become a whole computer, and then no Mongola. Yeah, no compromise, and then and then Mongola can help you do development on it. Yeah, so it's good stuff. Yeah, check it out. Um, well, guys, it's been a couple of weeks, um, and anyone who's listening. Like the four people who use Windows Phone, who now just stop listening to this podcast forever. <laughs> um, Do we have a Windows 10 app for the Windows 10 phone? Um, just like everyone else, no, we don't. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, we, we, but we will. That's um, too bad. Untap market. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I figure they're already, the four people are already subscribed to the podcast, so... I think I think what we need to do is uh, at the beginning of some of the old uh, the show with Zay Frank episodes, he would do something absolutely ridiculous at the beginning of the show, and then he would say, "Are the new new listeners gone yet?" <laughs> uh, We'd have to have listeners to have new listeners. Well, yeah, I mean, then we can keep our four. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I, I was a little late in getting the last episode up, and it went up today as we just before we recorded this um, because I kind of forgot to put it up after we did it and then we went on thanksgiving and did all that stuff so then it was like oh yeah i guess i need to do that so i'll try not to do that again um though we don't really have a holiday schedule we'll come up with one here soon and we'll announce it to every one of you um <laughs> so let me kick this off properly neil you wanted to um talk about a spotlight on topic on yep. proxy stuff which proxies. is actually what he said to me when I asked him what it was today. He said, oh, the proxy stuff. The proxy stuff. So that's literally what I wrote down. So uh, we're, we're supposed to, you know, talk about stuff that's coming up in uh, ES6, is it? Or ES2015? We can talk about whatever we want. Talk sure. about whatever you want. Like, yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's where I'm picking my topics from. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That. yeah. And uh, 
I actually, uh, I've done a lot of iOS development in the last few years. And one of the things that, that we used a lot in the product that I worked on was uh, an object called NSProxy. Uh, we use it to do some really, really neat stuff where we kind of uh, intercept behavior. Was that on... NSA proxy or NS proxy? NS you... proxy. Okay, so you're intercepting stuff. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, ne- NS standing for Next Step, who Apple bought way back in the day. So they had an object called NS proxy. It would allow us to take uh, kind of built-in objects uh, or objects that had a lot of implementation already done uh, and intercept calls to them. And it's one of the reasons that I thought that the ES6 proxies uh, idea was pretty neat. Uh, and I like that I have a lot of experience with that whole, the whole pattern in general. I, it's just, it's a really, really simple pattern. So it's not, uh, you don't need to be an expert to figure out how you might use it. Uh, basically, all that it is, uh, is that you can take uh, an object and you can apply a handler to it. And one of the things that they did is that they made the handlers reusable. So you can take uh, any object and apply the same handler to it. So you can have just a handler that is designed to do a very specific um, interception of getters and setters on the object. Uh, And that's really what proxies are. Is there a way for you to define what should happen uh, when properties are accessed or changed? So you you can make a proxy to do things like prohibit access to private variables based on a uh, naming pattern. So you can make it so that any uh, any property with the underscore as the first parameter is inaccessible, it'll throw an error. Um, you can make it so that uh, users can't override functions if you wanted. You can make it so that all they could do is call getters on functions uh, if you really wanted to, to protect your class. Uh, so you can do some really, really neat stuff. Uh, the way that it works is pretty simple. Your handler is just an object that has a get and a set function, uh, where the set function, you pass it, uh, the oh, it gets passed what object is being manipulated, the key that's being set, and the value that's being set. Uh, and then the get just has the target that's being, being manipulated and what key uh, is being accessed on it. Uh, it's pretty simple from there. You can return true or false to tell it whether or not that uh, operation was able to succeed. Uh, you can throw errors uh, during get and set to describe why you decided that they couldn't access something. Um, so that's all That's all pretty straightforward. Um, those are some good examples for how it all works. So what uh, are some other uses besides like the, the just the get and set? Like, Is that all it does or you can do other things with it? I mean, I like it as a way, uh, there are some times where you're dealing uh, with objects where you have no access to change its behavior, uh, right? Like you might be able, you might have to access, you might be able, the only way you can get objects is in a specific way. Things like uh, the DOM is a good example. There's only really one way to uh, create DOM objects because they're kind of mysterious objects. Uh, and you can't really subclass them. And there's always going to be little browser bugs you run into where subclassing built-in objects is hard. Uh, and then one of the reasons in Objective-C why uh, we had to use proxies is because there is uh, there are lots of classes that you just can't subclass. Basically, they decided that they're too difficult for people to mess with, uh, which makes sense. You're going to run into to objects like that constantly. 
Uh, and then one of the one of the really neat things that we used proxies for is that we had a lot of uh, we have kind of an ORM that can handle. I mean, an indefinite number of objects. Um, but the idea is that uh, you load an object from the database and then you create a proxy for it and the proxy stays uh, the same object uh, over time. So it's always the same object. If you compare two of them together, they're always the same. But what they can do is that they can hold uh, the actual backing object in in memory as long as it's needed. And then if memory gets tight, it can... Uh, let that object drop away if it's not being accessed and then it can reload it the next time someone calls a getter or setter on that object so that's kind of one of the neat things you can do with proxies is you can have a like a backing object that can be loaded on demand uh, or uh, let go on demand so you can do really neat stuff like that yeah one of the interesting things i saw done with proxies is um somebody somebody basically wrapped um a restful type service and yeah. you know normally when you write a javascript object you have to define all of its properties but when you can mm -hmm. proxy out and and trap like gets and sets and things like that you can actually um you can actually respond to properties that are not exactly on the object um that you can forward on through uh, you know using a restful call back to the service or something like that and then get responses are so you're talking you about actually, Wizzle? Um, I try not to talk about Wizdle. It's a thing. It exists. Thankfully, there's mostly frameworks to wrap around it, so you never have to actually Wizdle anything. So anymore. we can finally have our Wizdle wrapper in JavaScript. Yes. Thank God for proxies. For. Yeah. 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 That's an unfortunate side effect, I think. But <laughs> yeah, you you can actually do all sorts of things with these proxies, and they have like a dozen features above gets and sets like you can you can proxy a function and redo how that function behaves um and uh redefine how delete works and um you know redefine whether something's extensible and you can actually um you can actually extend from a proxy and use it as part of your prototype so you can take this restful proxy that you've created and then extend from that you know using your, your ES6 classical inheritance or or just prototypical inheritance. I so can't wait to cool see things. the crazy things that people will do with that. And I can't Oh, terrible wait. things too. I can't terrible, wait till the, yeah, things. I can't wait till the terrible things happen to become like <laughs> super popular ways to do things like, you know, a la like the dollar sign from jQuery, like yeah. just something like that, where it just becomes like this thing that everyone does and it's horribly wrong. Um, I can't wait for that. Well, what's kind of nice is that it's kind of single directional. Like once you decided that someone can access a property, it's like that throughout the whole chain. It's not, uh, you can't undo things that people have done. Uh, at least in terms of the proxy. The other neat thing that I found out when I was looking at this is that the, uh, the proxy, you can also have it return uh, a revoking function. Hmm. So you can, after you return a proxy object from... Uh, from a function call or after for, for whatever reason, if you decide that the user shouldn't be able to access that object anymore, you can call revoke on the proxy and they won't be able to use that proxy anymore. So I, th I thought that was kind of neat. I've actually had some situations where I did want to do that type of behavior where, um, I basically wanted someone have, to have access to a value and then make it that so that that value was immediately useless right afterwards. 
So it's kind of fun. Cool, like a one-time type response, huh? Yeah, or, or you know, an immediately cleared uh, object. That's cool stuff. Yeah. So the the standard question of when can you use it now uh, with 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 some kind of transpiler, or are we waiting on you know future versions of what to to use it? Do you know, Paul? <laughs> No. Oh God, no. No, you can't you use guys it at had, all. You guys had yeah. one job. One job. No, 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 I know this job. I, I wrote the I wrote the workshop <laughs> on it. And no, you can't use it. You can't transpile it um because it actually requires yeah, uh, it's like a language level, level support. Yeah. It, it's basically it's metaprogramming and anytime you do metaprogramming you need like some level of, of system support. So the, the good news is that uh the Chromium team has just introduced uh, proxies into their internal build, I believe, and so they're they're testing some amount of it. So it may end up in Node eventually first, but developers aren't going to be able to transpile this. So as long as your target is an ES5 target, you won't be able to use proxies. What if but they're super cool? Um, what if it's a <laughs> Windows Phone 10 target? Um, I, I guess I'll need to check with our sponsor and find out <laughs> what year that's slated for. You know what? If they're running Edge, Edge actually has like some of the best um, support of ES6 right now, according to the the Matrix. I forget what it. That's because Edge is a great browser that is only found on Windows 10, like the Windows 10 phone, (laughs) which you can buy at 10 different locations in the United States and worldwide. Do they have 10 Microsoft stores? That would be amazing. Every year, every time they release a new Windows, they get this is Microsoft. true. This is actually fact. That's that's factually accurate. <laughs> that's why they had to skip nine. I heard they they. <laughs> oh, I like Microsoft, and man, that's that's good stuff. Though it's just it, it. They're awesome. I've been digging TypeScript. It's just fun to poke fun. After it really is. It's IE6. like it's our turn now. Like even you know, like yeah. uh, we can still like you and poke fun because you made us do so many horrible things. Okay, uh, we are going to move on now and talk about a follow up to the package manager talk, which was on the previous episode. And um, Paul was not on that episode, but has a lot of grumpy opinions about package <laughs> managers which is weird that you guys are so opinionated about something so like not that big a deal but you know i guess that makes sense it's only the center of all development nowadays is the package manager and operating systems and everything else so it's, it's not, not that big of a deal but i'm i'm probably gonna sound like a grumpy old man because you are because you know i <laughs> we, yeah well not not yeah. old yet i hope uh yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm getting there. Um, but yeah, like uh, we were going over show notes and and getting ready for the today's show uh, last week, and um, I wasn't able to make the last podcast. And Nick uh, says, "Oh, we went over package managers," and I grumpily declared that package managers have been solved for a long time. And this started a whole talk between me and Neil and and Nick a little bit, and and my grumpy ranting and raving about it. And, you know, like NPM is a great piece of software. It's a great package manager. It, it made, um, it helped catapult Node as, as like a real platform. And it solved a lot of the problems that I've experienced with um, eggs and gyms and uh, jars. <laughs> and and it's, it's getting better. But at the same time, like they're just, they're, they're 
they're basically reinventing and redoing a lot of the work that that maven and sonotype and a lot of others um that have come before them have already solved um which like now they've released shrink wrap which is pretty cool you can actually lock down your dependencies and and check it in using their package or using their their repository and not having to like um download everything and uh include it as part of your your uh, bundle or, or whatever you want to call it. You don't have to check it in. You don't have to, to artifice it. That's a word, I think. Artifice? Um, artifice? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's a word. Um, it is now. You don't have to like... I'm going to use that every day. Now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you don't have to like download the world. Uh, you can you can just shrink wrap it. And, uh, but, you know, gems have had their gem file uh, lock for a while that has done a lot of the same stuff. Um now they're they're introducing their their on-site private repos and private repos in general which has been a long time thing for a lot of the other other packages um and they're also like like they're they finally decided to flatten um their dependencies and node just to be clear when you're saying they are there you're talking about npm (laughs) yes yeah most most the man yeah npm the the man um i mean they're they are they, right? Because <laughs> they're they're out there and they're in everybody's the script in the high castle. Um, <laughs> have you been watching that? Uh, I have been. Yeah, I've seen the first two. Uh, I've seen the first one, and it's it's good. The man in the high castle for anybody who's wondering. But um, yeah. So yeah, npm's roadmap is has been like, oh, we're gonna flatten out node modules. Um, which is great because a lot of the the dependency management doesn't deal well with hierarchical type um, uh, dependencies. That's like a really a node thing to do. Um, and node has all these rules associated with, okay, well, we're going to look up the dependency tree and we're going to look up your folder directory structure until we find a node modules folder or until we find a matching this and that. Um, and so NPM's kind of working within those rules and they've decided to kind of flatten things out. It, that's nice and all, except when you have conflicting dependencies. You know, somebody's gonna somebody depends on different versions um, of of one of your dependencies or another dependency. Um, it actually goes back and it it does the hierarchical um, type model again, and so like they're working through that. But but Maven solved that a long time ago. Like they've just defined oh we're gonna have directories, and then at the end of the the directory that's you know some namespace. It's going to be a version number, and then it's going to be the the package name, or it's the package name and version number, or whatever it is. And you know, while npm's experimenting with this, I think eventually they're going to have to come to a consensus that, yeah, we need to have some sort of knowability on this, and that knowability can't come from um, reorganizing all of your dependencies whenever you add a dependency that's conflicting with a version number of another dependency. And eventually node's going to have to come and realize like, oh, version numbers might be important. So maybe we have to allow people to to bring in different versions of things and include that in our, our require block. I don't know. Maybe that's heresy. But, you know, we've already <laughs> no, been through important. a lot of this. It is. It, like it, the version number, it's part of, of, of everything. Like you check it into get, you tag it, like you check it out with the version number. It's part of your package uh, JSON file. It, it's just a matter of time before they realize this and they go the way that, that Maven has gone, or I don't know, maybe they're going to stun us, but 
you know, a lot of these problems they've been <laughs> they've been solved before. Yeah. Like Maven's Maven's done all of this, and um, you know, I I I was actually listening to um, Josh Corman, who's uh, the CTO of, of Sonotype, which um, is has one of the biggest open source Maven repos in the world. Um, talking about what they're doing now with with uh, their their repo, and um, they're starting to do kind of interesting things with their repo, not just having it as like a store for data and, and like open source, but they're they're like auditing information in their repo and comparing it against the their source code repositories that that link these projects link to, and, and finding out like real information that's actually useful to developers that are trying to like write secure and and interesting stuff like some of the stuff they're auditing is like the mean time to fix for packages and they're they're like identifying security issues in like cipher packages and libraries and saying like yeah this this version of i think bouncy castle was the example that he used is is exploitable and should no longer be used in production anywhere and you know they can they can actually get this information from the repos so i fully expect npm's roadmap to start to merge with that in fact they're already doing things like um, they're rewriting their API, um, their commands back in the APIs, so they can do things like extending out how um, repository resolution happens, which is what Maven Wagon did, um, and you know it kind of takes on a lot of what Bower has already done with their um, their resolvers. So I mean, it's just it's one big circle. We're kind of going back to you know the old things, and we're adding. Writing JSON, which is nice because XML was horrible. Yeah. And we've separated out like the dependency management from the build scripts, um, which is what Maven was was terrible with. They, that they had this um, this prescribed type of build, which made things like JavaScript really difficult to add in there um, without writing your own Java and, and creating plugins and, and everything for it. But uh, yeah, anyway, I got on a big rant and about about the same as this one. <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, you know, we we talked back and forth about like it's just it's it's kind of reinventing the wheel. It's bringing a lot of good stuff together. But you know, I expect I expect a lot of npm's roadmap to start following you know a lot of the its predecessors and and for the better of, of the community. But at the same time, it's you know it's all been seen before. We should we should do new stuff. Well, my question has, has been, is it worth considering using Maven in our current build processes, our current uh, package management? So um, I've been away from Java development for a while, and I can tell you that, that Maven in its, um, in its really opinionated build can make things difficult when you need to do special cases and mm. things. And, and JavaScript is one of those things. For the longest time, um, Java developers included a JavaScript build as like this thing that happens as part of a Java build and then bundles it all into the jar um, that's created. And that was just really bad. It, it held back JavaScript development for a long time. And it, it was bad for a lot of reasons. Primary among those is that it's really hard to have separation of concerns when you're bundling in your your JavaScript and, in, and writing templates on the server to push data out um so what what really good what really good stuff that came out of maven actually ended up being um maven nexus and all the repositories 
and the version uh, reconciliation that it allowed you to, you know, state version ranges and things like that. All things that that Bower doesn't have today because Bower's kind of lazy. Um, Bower relies on on get to or making your own resolvers in order to do this kind of reconciliation. They don't really have their own uh, repo up. <coughs> so like if you were to take one thing out of it, I, you know, if you were to say, I'm gonna use the old tech and, and everything, um, you know, both Maven um, Nexus and uh, Artifactory uh, have access to NPM and they're great ways to like uh, build and test and wrap up your stuff in an artifact that is is already pre-compiled and is already done with so you can have like um, this knowable bundle that you've already tested um, available to you so so that you know is being brought with npm uh, with npm registries and things like that and there's projects uh, like uh, I think it's Sinopia that are providing similar functionality to what the Maven Nexus repository did with its proxy of repositories and stuff like that. So, you know, slowly we're bringing those things forward. I would look to the future unless you have to support a lot of the stuff from the past. Yeah, no, we we're, one of the things we were talking about was having like built and minified files as part of the uh, repositories. Seems like that would go fit in with what you were saying. Yeah, and, and that's that's part of, you know, just that's part of the continuous integration process is that, you know, you, you want to have a single source of build. You don't want to really put things out there that haven't been built. Or when you test, you, you really want to test against your built artifact because that's what's being released to your people, your clients, or, or whoever you're, you're serving. Um, so when you when you bundle and then keep a reference to that artifact, you can go back later and then retest it. Um, you can compare versions a lot easier. You're not going to get something like um, varying dependency versions and things if you forgot to shrink wrap or something like that. It, it, at least it's not going to be as common. Um, it, it's just you know it's a good way to develop is to have this bundle that's already minified and everything. And what you yeah. what you want to put out there is what you want to. Uh, test and and test again. <laughs> you think at some point, <clears throat> since these problems of package management and dependency management, and versions and all of those things have been done and solved by everybody um, over and over again, that there would be like some kind of you know like an interface design. There's like patterns um, you know that you can look at and yeah. say, oh yeah, like if you want to do a contact form, like here's a pattern for that, and here's a pattern for this. You just think that there would be you know. A pattern and then you would just be like okay well we're gonna start a new package thing let's look at the pattern and find out the thing that's gonna be <laughs> like the thing we're all know we're gonna run into because it's been done so many times but then again you then asking um you know engineers to not want to just engineer stuff themselves and invent it themselves and find out the problems themselves um which i sometimes is unrealistic um i don't know what it is about you guys but you just like like problems and like finding new ones that are old ones that are new now. There's probably a blogger out there that has written like the perfect summary of exactly how package management should be done, but he only has like four, four readers. So no yeah, he should probably create some sort of a controversy and maybe we'll get some get picked up. Exactly. Okay. So, um, speaking of, uh, finding bugs, 
Neil, why don't you tell us about your bug of the week? Bug of the week. This one's not as exciting as uh, previous weeks. I'm tuning out. I'll be back. Yeah. All right, next. Next. Some of the... <laughs> I, nothing's going to be as good as the text re-rendering bug that I found. That so it's basically favorite, at this point, it's just all downhill from here. Okay. It's all downhill. All yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I got, yeah. So, uh, one of the ones we ran into was that, uh, I was looking at a bug and, uh, I was told that there should be some expected behavior. So they were expecting it to see, see a certain thing. Uh, and what they were actually seeing uh, was something different. And it took me a while to try to isolate this, this uh, isolate the bug into uh, the smallest possible problem that I could, right? Like uh, when you're dealing with bugs, you kind of want to isolate exactly what's wrong with it into your smallest possible example. Theoretically. Uh, and it was a pretty complicated... Yeah. Theoretically. It was a pretty complicated setup, so it took me quite a long time to just get it all all working. Uh, just get the right environment in place that had all the right uh, stuff that was supposed to be creating this problem. Uh, and what ended up happening is that when I finally isolated it to this very, very small problem... Uh, the result that I was seeing was the one that they were saying was incorrect. So that was uh, not not what I expected to see. Uh, and they were getting uh, occasionally one that they said was uh, incorrect. And that was the one that I was seeing. So uh, we discussed it uh, and basically figured out that there was another... Uh, library that was being installed that was uh, manipulating the HTML underneath the, or, or the DOM rather, uh, underneath the widget without the widget knowing about it. So my bug of the week is including multiple toolkits that mess with the same underlying code in ways that they don't know about or that each other doesn't How'd know How'd you about. eventually figure that out? Like, did you like look just through discussion, I mean, I, I, I created the, I created this really, really uh, basic test case, uh, and then we discussed it, and they were like, oh, okay, it's something else is doing that. So I guess like when you created your test case, though, did you include that in the library initially, or were, did you not include it, and then everything was working, and then? Oh, I okay. wasn't aware of the other library at first. I was I was given kind of what template was being used and stuff like that. Uh, and so I wasn't, I wasn't sure of what the entire environment is. And, and a lot of the times when I'm trying to, to isolate bugs, if I was to try to include the entire project, yeah, it's not like isolating yeah. quite a lot of effort. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I mean, not, not just, you can still do some things to isolate in a large code base, but getting a large code base up and running, uh, can be a lot of time, even if you're, especially if you're just mm -hmm. looking at one bug, um, and you're not on the project full time. Yeah. I think that. That's definitely so, one of the things that I've run into when you're trying to isolate something is just how much to remove and and then, you know, until it, it starts working. Um, that's definitely one of those those things that's just trial and error sometimes. So you just keep removing stuff or keep adding stuff until it breaks. And then, okay, which line was it that did that? What's one of the reasons, uh, like one of the things that we're thinking uh, when we're, we're planning the new uh, Dojo widget system for Dojo 2 
uh, one of the things we want to look at is this idea of uh, not having to worry about what your underlying DOM looks like. So in that type of environment, uh, the other the, the code that messed with the DOM, the next time it was re-rendered, that would just be fixed. Like there wouldn't be anything uh, inherently broken by that that sort of conflict between the two libraries. So what I take away from that is that Dojo 2 is going to just beat every other library into submission by just doing its own thing. <laughs> Don't try to crack me. You'll still try. No, no, there won't be bugs. Don't try to crack me. That's that's what I heard. Um, Dojo two, no bugs. Dojo two, you'll never have a bug again. <laughs> Thanks, Neil. So that's our so Neil, uh, sponsor next week. Neil, you 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 you're saying let's be aware of blah, let's be aware of toolkit interactions. Yeah. How does that? How do polyfills then make you feel that that actually add to the the general JavaScript code base? Like, is that something that you should have the same? They make him feel anxious, with, or do they make you feel anxious? They don't make me feel anxious. I, like, if they're done right, then there's no problem at all. Uh, but it's hard. Like, it's one of those things where I, I think the bigger question might just be like, do I worry about browser bugs? Right? Because I do worry about browser bugs. Uh, I think I worry about polyfill bugs the same way I worried about about which is to bugs. just ignore it until uh, it comes time to do final testing. Yeah, yeah. Like if if it's if something's <laughs> if something's broken, then it's broken. Uh, I would the one thing I would worry about is uh, polyfills being done outside of a toolkit uh, and out, out done outside of a testing environment because are you talking about randomly going you to decide GitHub for, and just grabbing a polyfill that someone posted? Oh, is yeah. that a bad? Yeah. Is that a bad I thing to do? Just, I shouldn't do that. <laughs> that's, okay. <laughs> or are you worried about the, the lone developer that comes in and says, "Gosh, I really need a promise implementation." I need to go exactly. change some code, guys. I'll be own. back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm worried about like kind of copy and paste polyfills. I would say, but polyfill projects, I'm much more comfortable with. Uh, it, it's it's tough. Not every not every programmer can think in that way, right? You need to think. Uh, what is going to be the right uh, environment where I need a polyfill? Uh, what are the, the environments where I don't want a polyfill? Uh, how can I how can I guess how this implementation might change before it's finally released and and structure my code in a way that deals with that? Uh, right, like uh, a lot of what you need to do when you're doing uh, polyfills for uh, kind of unreleased APIs is you need to say this should only work if these arguments are being passed because the next version might change the arguments and work in a different way. And you don't want your polyfill to try to be using a string when it's expecting a number or try to be using a, a, an object when it, you're passing it null. So it takes a, it takes the right kind of person to uh, know what could go terribly wrong between the final implementation and what you're working on. Yeah. So like everything could go terribly wrong. Everything. Everything. Yeah. yeah. A lot could go terribly. Well, the problem is that it's innocuous, right? Uh, there's the average person can't see how terribly wrong things could go. Whereas, so, like, if you've anyone that's been in the, I, I would say, uh, what's, what's the term, in the weeds with, with some of this stuff, has seen uh, a two line function completely blow up a program. And knowing that that can happen really changes the way that you look at these problems. Oh, you mean while true? 
Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, um, even some some yeah. for loops, right? Like it's some of the stuff that you think is going to work. You pass one run run one different argument, uh, and and everything blows up. Yeah, um, I, I'm amazed anybody can write polyfills or anything based on the ECMA uh, standards. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. reading those is is crazy. They what just takes you ten hours to read the the spec and then uh, 15 minutes to actually implement it. Yeah, what could go wrong with that? Like, that's why I just trust the lone guy on (laughs) GitHub that I just Googled for and found, you know, the first. We just print, you print out, you print out the spec and you get a highlighter and a cup of coffee and I would need like and some some string and pins so you can like exactly, yeah, it's gonna look like heroes on it something with like all the the mappings. Yeah. Um, Your parents will come in. No, I, I ask what you're doing with your life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I actually have a bug of the week uh, that's not necessarily a bug, but just like one of yours in a past episode, Neil, that turns out wasn't a bug, even though you called it that. I'm going to be upfront that it's not necessarily a bug. Um, So I was doing some work on um, so the flat uh, flat digit theme. Um, If you search like flat digit theme on Google, there's a or in our show notes, which I just realized no one's been taking notes. So that's awesome. Um, if you <laughs> Google that, you'll see that there's this cool, um, Esri created flat digit theme. Um, and we had somebody else who wanted us to do another theme based on that. Um, so I was working on that. Um, and I found out as I was looking at it, that they had decided to use the, um, material icons from Google. Um, and which, yeah. you know, it's good. I love the way that those look, but then the, um, digit, uh, editor, didn't have a lot of the icons and also they used icomoon to create like a custom subset um, of of the icon set so that they would just have the things that they needed uh, which is totally fine um, and I, I thought though that for our customers needs that it made more sense to me that if they just used something straight you know like without having to do a custom font um, just because then you don't have to worry about other people like if you have other developers wanting to add stuff you know they can just go and look up the font and say okay you know here's all the glyphs available to me and i'll just use this icon you know um and and you know you don't have to like go and update your font to do that so realizing this and i look at how the digit editor was missing things from the material icon set that um i said well i'll go to font awesome um, which we've used as well and I really like also. Um, and it also has like less files and, and stuff. And, and since the customer is using less, um, that it made sense that they were all variableized uh, already for me so I didn't have to do all that work. Um, so I switched it to Font Awesome. And then when I refreshed after mapping all of the stuff, because um, I had to... I had to abstract out their abstractions so that if anyone changes anything, so like icon dash close is how you call the close icon in your CSS instead of using like FA dash bar dash icon dash times or something. Um, and that way, if you ever change out the font or, you, you know, you change out the icon set, you only have to update that variable instead of finding every place you use font awesome directly. Um, so I just had one file that kind of uh, abstracted again. So I refresh after I get everything set up and in the digit tab container, uh, when you when the screen's too small, it'll put arrows to scroll left and right and a little menu icon, which is cool. 
but the weird thing was is that when I first refreshed the buttons uh, to scroll left and right, there was a huge gap in between those buttons and the toolbar. Like you could just see like this, there was nothing there. It was just this huge gap. But as soon as I would resize the window in any way, the gap would close up and everything was fine. And hmm. when you inspect the DOM, there's absolutely nothing obvious about why it's doing this. Like you look at all, all the things and you can see that it's setting the width of, you know, various, um, you know, the, of the buttons and the, all the elements around it are all being set, but it's not clear well, what, what exactly changed, right? Like why all of a sudden did I change out this font uh, icon and it suddenly isn't right, right? So I did some experimenting and this yeah. is where you just start removing stuff and adding stuff until you can figure out what exactly is going wrong. So I knew obviously one thing that I did was I changed the icons, right? Like I changed the font. So I really had just removed the icon from the button and suddenly it was the right size. But as soon as I put the icon in again, now this is just in Chrome, by the way, I should say. Every other browser was completely fine. Just in Chrome and only if you didn't resize. Like if you just refreshed, it was there like, like this. So yeah. I just delete you know, the, the icon from the button and bam, it works. So that I start, okay, well, is it the icon or is there a rule in the, you know, the, the icon styling that you need to do for the pseudo element, the before uh, pseudo element? So, okay, because so I start removing one by one by one by one. And then I finally get to like the last one and remove it and like it works again. Uh, but the icon's not there. So, okay, what is going on? So now the next step, the step of debugging, change the icon to something else. And I change it to an up arrow and suddenly it's the right size again. Like it's right. <laughs> so now I realize exactly what's happening. And I just feel really dumb that I spent so long trying to realize, just trying to figure out what it was. And it's basically that um, whether, I don't know if it's, if it's actually the font themselves is like monospaced uh, with material mm. and it's not with Font Awesome. Um, I believe that's the case, that that's what it was. Um, the fix was basically to set a width on, you know, like Font Awesome has a way to do like a monospace thing um, with CSS. So yep. you can actually set that, but theirs is geared more towards, you know, setting a class name on something, which is not obviously going to work for me because I'm, you know, develop, I'm, you know, messing with the CSS to, to change these icons. So, you know, I basically had to go find what they're doing on those, um, class names to do that fix with and then add it in and then boom, everything works perfectly. Um, it's just one of those things that in hindsight you go, Oh, of course, like that makes complete sense. Of course, like it's, it's a font, it's, it's monospace. Yeah. And then it's drawing the, you know, the box around it, but it was just weird that however yeah. digit decides to do some of its layout, because you know that you know, with digit, it's not just CSS. Like there's is some JavaScript stuff that happens with layout and it just, you know, however it decided to do it only in Chrome, and because as soon as you would resize, everything would work. So that's just one of those weird things where it's not just CSS that you're doing with. You don't really know exactly. It's a black box as to what how digits doing the the layout. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in there. So yep. it's like just you know you're searching around, searching around, and and then sometimes it's just reducing reducing the test case to the simplest thing, and then okay, what what would be happening here? Okay, it's this. Um, and then, of course, the solution takes about two seconds. So <laughs> you, uh, you, you spend three hours on it, and then it's like, oh, of course, something so simple. Not a bug, I guess, even though every other browser did it completely right. Um, it's a bug. It's a bug. Yes. Okay, thank I'll you. Allow it. I appreciate that. 
because um, <laughs> I am also not good at code stuff things. So that is why <laughs> it's a bug. Okay, Neil, why don't you tell us about how we have been cheating on routers and we're going back around on the client's back. That's not what that says, but it, I, I swear the first time I read it, <laughs> when I read it at it. first, I thought there was some joke being like written here. And then I was like, I don't know, we're no. cheating on routers with the server and getting around on the client. Yeah. Cheating on routers. And then I was like, oh, let me read this again. Okay. So go ahead and tell us what it really is. So I've been, uh, this is, this seems to be the every two week story, right? Like I've been working on more stuff with, uh, the digit widget system. Uh, and one of the things I've been looking at is kind of the how the top level mechanisms of the app work. Uh, and those would be things like uh, routing. Uh, so meaning uh, how do how do high level state changes affect the app? Uh, so uh, like on a web server, when you have routing, a lot of it is just URL pat- patterns that, that call some code based on the URL pattern. Uh, and that's that's basically what I'm talking about here when I talk about routing is uh, the URL might be invisible sometime, right? Like it, when you're doing routing, it might not necessarily change the URL of the page, but you're doing uh, you're doing something that that should should affect the the state of the page in a pretty significant way. Uh, and I've been working on uh, dispatching as well, which is uh, like like I was saying, uh, kind of changing a big parts of the page without changing the URLs uh, or making sure at least that um, some action that was taken by the user gets to the right item on the page. Uh, so the other, and the last kind of big thing would be uh, inflating and deserializing or uh, taking some page state that existed before uh, and making the page look like that again. So I've been working on kind of these uh, interrelated ideas uh, over the past couple of weeks uh, and, and looking at how a bunch of different people do it and how, uh, the different mechanisms of which you can do it. And one of the ways that, uh, I've been looking to for inspiration, uh, and, and it's a thing that we keep looking to for inspiration is, uh, how, how things are done on a server, meaning, uh, how things are done on a web server that, that has URLs that you visit that display static HTML. Cause that's one of the one of the things that we've been talking about a lot is that that the pattern that that web servers have had traditionally of uh, kind of being stateless of you just giving them a URL and it gives you the same page every time uh, is very interesting uh, and uh, one of the things that I kind of got into when I was looking into this is is basically that the server cheats uh, when it, it does routing uh, and one of the things that it likes to do is uh, is with cookies, uh, right? So uh, when you visit a web page, uh, when you when you post a form, a lot of people understand that it's sending kind of invisible information in the background, right? Uh, if you uh, if you're signing up for a website, you put in your name and your email address uh, and uh, all sorts of you know personal information that they're going to use to to uh, do retargeting ads on you. Uh, and that data, it doesn't show up in the URL, right? Uh, it, it's sent invisibly to the server, uh, and that's using a post request. Uh, and one of the things that we don't really think about sometimes is that when we'll do get requests, uh, 
uh, the way that the data is communicated is through cookies. Uh, and it does it through a couple ways. Uh, sometimes you have a cookie that is uh, like a JSON object. So just serialized JavaScript. And then they sign it. So they create a, a hash that is key signed so they can verify that they're the ones that sent that information. So you can't mess around with information on the client. And another way they do that is that they just have an ID. And that ID is tied to their database. And it can load a bunch of extra information uh, that is related to you. So, I mean, the kind of the way that I got kind of into this uh, way of thinking is I was kind of asking myself, well, let's say that I had a tree of information that I wanted to dig down into. Um, can I look to the server pattern to kind of figure out how I would visit that URL? Uh, and kind of what I, what I decided is that a lot of these servers would um, keep that information in the database. It would say, you're looking at this tree, you have these branches expanded, and it wouldn't show up in the URL, right? Like your URL might just be which branch you expanded last or, or which branch you, you collapsed last. And it would store all that extra information in a database in the back end. Uh, and that's where I kind of, uh, I kind of figured out that I couldn't use that pattern for, for client side information. Uh, but what I kind of wanted to talk about is, and I'm hoping you guys will participate in, in, in the, or at least Paul, if uh, Tori doesn't feel like he's uh, uh, I will enough. participate in any discussion regardless <laughs> of my abilities. Um, kind of like, what, what does that look like on, on the client? Um, is that something that we should mimic server-side behavior on? Do we not even bother storing that information, uh, right? Like that's right, what we're doing right now is basically not storing that information. Uh, if you expand a bunch of trees and refresh your page, you don't get that state back necessarily. Um, yeah. Is it something that we should serialize and store in a server and then give back to the client when that page is reloaded? So I was just wondering what you guys think. So I've done some of this with um, some client-side application development and you have to be real picky about what you, you store on the client. And, and the reason being is um, if the client updates and things change, you can't really rely on that data unless you've versioned that data against a specific version of the client or you have some way of, of identifying whether your, your now changed client is, is still related back to your data. Um, so if you have like things that are open in some way, you don't want to give the user an a UX, like a user experience that is not going to be consistent with what your your new client expects. Even if it worked on your old client, you, you have to now worry about updating your, your saved data as you would on a database. Um, the other concern with that is, is there's no good persistence mechanism really on, on the client. And so you can store things, you can store small things in the cookies or local storage or their various SQL databases. And, and there's, there's, uh, packages to help you with that. But if you move from your desktop to your mobile phone, you, you still don't have that consistency of experience unless you have unless your desktop on. is your mobile phone, like your Windows 10 mobile phone, <laughs> which can become your desktop. Oh, it's amazing, people. Try it out. <laughs> Ad brought you, you said he I, I am participating. <laughs> that thank you uh <laughs> windows 10 windows 10 windows, um so yeah i mean there's certainly a 
significant number of challenges creating a consistent experience, which is overall what you want to do. Now, I mean, if somebody's just linking something over um, to another person and they say, I have this view, you should too. That's also another challenge because if I'm on my computer and I have a bunch of nodes expanded and I want to link over to you and say, hey, I've been looking at this hotel room and I've I've expanded the choices and this is the the one that I want. Like what happens now is is there's a landing page on the router for that. You can click on that landing page and when you share that landing page, they they have that room information available to them. But to get a list of all of the rooms and then have them expanded out and maybe the choice that you want actually highlighted, that that state is really hard to transfer over email or text or I don't know, the telephone or through the U.S. Postal Service. Um, It's really hard to get that across to another person. This is is my dream, though. (laughs) It's it's an amazing dream. (laughs) This is my idealistic final state that we can get to. Well, does it just kind of depend on a couple of things? Like, um, you know, I think that some things don't require the level of... um, kind of like you were saying about like a hotel room, right? Like you're viewing the hotel room and you've expanded some things like that's that kind of thing. Saving that state in some way in the URL is actually not that big of a deal versus something where, you know, the, the data could have changed significantly and it's no longer valid. So you can't really save that data. Right. Um, and I, I guess it's like, to me, it just goes to what level are you trying to, are you trying to uh, accomplish that, you know, well, some of my assumptions are this data is going to have to be saved on the server, right? It's going to have to be persisted on the server. Um, I mean, at least that's kind of how I'm seeing it. Uh, I think that it can be stored uh, in fairly simplistic ways on the client, but you would want that only as a a holding pattern if you were offline, right? Like as soon as it got online, it would then transmit that to the server. Uh, and I would like to be able to reference that somehow in the URL of a page um, through one of the mechanisms of URL rewriting that JavaScript has. Uh, but it gets kind of tough because uh, let's say I was to be able to uh, try to do every single thing that I wanted. I would need to have some sort of uh, public state, which is just what has happened on the page. Uh, I don't have to have some sort of private state, which is related to their user account. Um, the user account stuff, if I wanted to, if I wanted to make it URL specific, right? So that it wasn't just uh, global to that user. If it was like some workflow that they're, they're currently participating in, uh, then I'm going to need two different IDs in my URL. So then if I'm looking at, the URL is not just the resource that they're looking at. The URL is the resource plus a public ID plus a private ID. And you want to be able to copy and paste that to someone else. It still seems like that's pretty ugly. And I can't necessarily think of a cleaner way to do that. Well, I think that's when, you know, Tori and user experience comes in. Um, I think you just need to signal to the user when it's appropriate to share pages like, I mean, we, we've attacked some of this through share icons and, and things that you can actually click on something and then share it across to another person. Um, you know, as, as you try to capture more and more state in this public and private ID, they start looking more and more like um, 
what's it called? Sh- uh, session IDs. Where a yeah. session ID is normally like a private-ish key to identify a user session. Um, you know, you're talking about a public and private ID now to, to identify public and private states. Yeah, and it also goes to the user experience side of, um, you know, if you're creating something in mind where you want them to be sharing things that you um, that you give them interfaces that could be uh, easily shared. Like you gave the example of you opened a tree and you opened, you know, maybe you're only saving the one, you know, the last open one and you want to be able to show it exactly as it was. Um, you know, the, the, the bigger question there is, is the tree the most effective way to do that? Or is there some other mechanism that you could, you know, and because these are all abstract, it's really hard to say, right? Like, it's just like, you know, what do you think it could be? But, you know, some of it could go to, to the user experience question of, could you give them a different interface that gave them a more, um, I guess, a more code-friendly way to, to tackle the problem? Um, yeah, I, I, I kind of like the example of, like, booking a flight. Uh, like, let's say that uh, my my wife was to get three out of four steps through booking a flight, right? Uh, and all that was left was just making the decision on the final leg of the flight. So the the state is like all of the, the dates that she's entered. Um, if she doesn't want to do overnight flights, uh, if you want to only do nonstops, like there, there's so much state that needs to be captured as part of this process. And that's the kind of example right. that I'm looking at. And uh, I kind of think what, what, what Paul was saying, uh, uh, like maybe that's some of how it all works, is maybe you have to have some sort of URL short, shortener on your server. Like maybe, maybe all of that state is serialized, sent to a server, that server stores it and gives you a URL that, that has all that stuff that gets expanded when you visit it again. Um, that's not my favorite solution. Uh, like one of the things that I consider to be fairly important is being able to move uh, in a workflow from uh, from a mobile device to a desktop computer. If you don't, if you have, don't a have a Windows 10 phone, phone yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, being able to kind of switch between different uh, states, and that's where that sort of uh, URL minification could break down a lot. So in regards to that, I think some interesting things may be coming down the pipe. Um, I think there's a web standards out there that they're looking at like NFC and things like that. Yeah. It would be nice to be able to tap your phone against your laptop and be able to transfer your state over um, using some serialized ID like you're talking about. Basically a session ID that you serialize and say, oh, this is my state. I can either share it or I can... I can tap my phone or, or do whatever I want and maintain that state on my next machine or, or you know, if I'm, if I'm booking a flight, I can tap my wife's phone and say, hey, look at this option and, and share that information across and then she has the same state as I do. I think that that state needs to be laid out explicitly. You can't just build a framework to do that. Although, Neil, you can do some amazing things, so maybe... <laughs> Um, we'll see. Well, to be clear, Neil's Neil's preferred method, which isn't what you you know the things that you've said, is actually just magic. Uh, is his preferred yeah, method? Like so everything is going to be a compromise for him at that point. I yeah, guess. the tough thing I hear about magic is there's always a cost. Uh, I think you have to sell your soul or that's something. That's how it's been for me. Is that might be? Yeah. 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 So when it works, though, when it works, it works. Yeah, that's that's generally the definition <laughs> you know? of works. Like it, it yeah. works. Yeah, that's true. Cool. Well, uh, I'm going to go work on my spellcasting. Forget <laughs> this podcasting thing. 
I'm not very good at it. So yeah, I gotta. So in summary, there's no easy answer. Says yeah. In summary, just like every other thing in web development, just pick what you you know pick the uh, thing you you want to compromise least, and then you know do everything else. I think we're hit exactly an hour. That was my goal in life. Good for you guys. Thanks for coming. It's been a joy. Absolutely. Next time. Bye. I was rolling down the window because I like to feel the wind blow. We got a good thing. Gonna see where the day goes. Take it fast, take it real slow. We got a good thing. Got a good thing going on. Bye, bye, bye.